HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, I'm suffering from a little laryngitis. I'm not sure why, um, but I have a super cool show today. Um, I was contacted by somebody who represents an organization, a new kind of poultry company called Farmer Focus. And the CEO and founder is Corwin Heatwall. I hope I'm saying that right. And um, a sixth generation farmer. He started Farmer Focus in 2014, and he's with us today to talk about how basically he and, I suppose, like-minded individuals are going to change uh, animal agriculture for the better. So, Corwin, why don't we start with how you happened to launch Farmer Focus? Because if you were already, you know, a sixth-generation poultry farmer or even a second-generation poultry farmer, um, you know, it's a very different model than what you're pursuing right now. So how did you segue out of industrial chicken into Farmer Focus chicken? Yeah, well, thank you, Katie. It's wonderful to be here today. And that uh, can be a little bit of a lengthy answer to that question, but I'll, I'll keep it uh, condensed. But ultimately, uh, why we started is because it was very personal uh, to me, because as a sixth generational farmer, as you mentioned, you know, we don't farm for the livelihood. We farm because it's the lifestyle that we want. You know, it's the family working together on the farm, uh, spending lots of time with your animals on the land and, you know, eating what you grow and you love what you do. But it's concerning when you see dozens of farms closing down around you and you personally yeah. know a lot of these farmers and you know, realize that your own farm is not viable for the next generation. You cannot in good conscience pass your own farm along to your children and expect them to bear that burden. Um, but we knew that something had to be done. We pondered it for many years. You know, what are we going to do to bring a solution to these issues? And talked about it a lot. And I heard so many people say, well, farmers can't start chicken companies. <laughs> and for the most part, they're right. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't let that stop us from trying to find a, a way to uh, break through that and uh, to be able to create a completely different model than the vertically integrated model, which I know you're very familiar with, yes. um, and in a way that one that worked for everyone. It worked for the 
works for the farmers, works for the company, works for the consumers, and ultimately it's just a way to connect farmers with consumers. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so I'm assuming that your your dad and maybe your granddad were, you know, doing uh, the the industrial model as as envisioned by, say, you know, Jim Jewell and and uh, whoever it was, Don Tyson, I think it was, or maybe it was, I don't know what Tyson's first name was, but anyway, but back back in the '40s, so so obviously you found that unsatisfactory. So tell us a little bit about how your model differs from that traditional integrator style where the integrator owns the eggs, you know, brings the chicks, owns the birds, gives you the feed, tells you what to do, and then takes the birds away. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get a decent price point for your birds. But you, of course, never know whether you're going to get, you know, uh, you know, 50 cents or, or 75 cents, you know, right? Right. So what how do you how do you how did you change that up? Yeah, I'll explain that. But another thing that uh, was a big challenge with the vertical integrated models, not just owning everything, controlling everything, but that was the pay system that they, that's called the tournament pay systems. It's where farmers yes. actually compete against each other. And so in order for one farmer to win, another farmer had to lose. So um, when we got, uh, you know, things around and we were, our sales were beyond what I could produce on my own farms. Um, we needed to create uh, our what we call the farmer focus model. It's the structure of that relationship and how we partner with our growers. And in order to develop that, I got a group of farmers together and we sat down around a kitchen table uh-huh. and asked the farmers, what do you dream about? Uh-huh. And they said, well, I want to own the birds on my farm and I want to have operational control of my farm. And, you know, I don't want to be paid on the tournament style systems. And so that day is really where our uh, our model was born, and that's what it does. So as everything in contrast that you just talked about with the integrator model is the farmer-focused model that allows the full ownership of everything that's on a farmer's farm, and that's mm-hmm. really important. Absolutely. Um, which, because of that, we can transfer the operational control of the farm to the farmer. and so. The farmers aren't just inspired by this being an invested owner in the process. When you have control of something um, and the outcome is in your hands, it inspires a special level of animal husbandry attention to detail that that you won't get another way. And it's resulted in a higher quality at a lower cost. Interesting. It's a a formula for the consumers to win. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> what about the feed? Like, how do you, you, each farmer is in charge of its own, his own, his or her own, um, you know, decisions about what they are feeding their flocks. Because um, that, that to me is always something that I, I thought was kind of an interesting part of the, of the vertical integration is that you, you have this, you know, all these animal scientists, you know, wherever they are in the, in the Tyson, you know, headquarters or Purdue or whatever, and they're and they're determining that you know the rations for these birds are going to be X, Y, and Z in terms of grain, in terms of minerals, in terms of vitamins and supplements and whatever. How do your farmers inform themselves? Like, how do they figure that out for themselves, or do you help them? Do they or do they already know what they should be doing? And they've and they they had their own project in mind all along, and they just had to do what the what the integrator wanted before. Yeah, I love the question uh, because <laughs> it's really a big partnership. 
um, between us and our farmers. And so uh, we use our, our size to um, book quantities of feed at, at more attractive prices. And uh, we partner with uh, nutritionists and scientists then to help determine what our feed ration should be so that each individual farmer does not have to worry about that. And then we work with our grower committees to say, is this working? How is it on the farms? Is it performing good? Do we need to make a tweak? Right. And so we work together with our farmers to come up with it, uh, the ration, and then hold the feed mill accountable to pricing and uh, quality and consistency and everything. So um, it's not where the company owns the hatchery and the feed mill. And if they make a mistake or, or things are not perfect, then the company is the bad guy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in quotes. Yeah. So um, with this, we are partnered with our growers to hold hatcheries and feed mills accountable to uh, pricing and quality. So it, it takes out the combative approach and it's completely collaborative. Wow. Very interesting. So <clears throat> one of the things uh, that struck me about your company, well, first of all, let's, let's go, let's talk about how, cause you mentioned the size of your company. So how much chicken are your, you know, farm, how many farmers are you working with? How many birds are you producing per year? And, and what's your price point? Yeah, great. Uh, great questions there. Um, <laughs> we're, we're currently um, producing, we're currently partnered with about, with 72 farmers right here in the Shenandoah Valley, all within about an hour of uh, where I'm sitting here now. And um, one thing that's important is, is just a testament to the need for a new model to produce for is the fact that there's well over 100 farmers on our waiting list that were all unsolicited and are pre-qualified and very anxious uh, to grow for us, which nice. is uh, it's exciting because as as consumers continue to support the brand, it will allow us to continue to just spread and partner with the farmers that are already pre-qualified and very anxious to go. Right. So, um, we're, you know, we're currently uh, producing um, about a million and a half pounds a week. Wow. And distribute that up and down the, uh, the East coast. So, um, you know, as far as price points, it just, it varies so much depending on parts and things that I really, I don't know how to speak to it, but, Okay. But we are priced uh, competitively uh, in the organic industry, even though, um, you know, we have this unique partnership with our farmers that that uh, takes really focuses on the farmer, takes care of the farmer, but yet um, is really focused on the connection between consumers and farmers. Right, right. So <clears throat> your 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 growers are your chickens are organic. So what? What is it? What's first of all? What is the criteria for selecting your growers? And does it cost them a lot to switch over to an organic mode, or are they already in some sort of organic, uh, you know, space before they come to you? You know, it it uh, does cost to convert to organic. Um, you know, it's uh, there are some differences there that that cause uh, capital improvements to be needed on the farm. But yeah, yeah. That, that's just the cost of entry for any business, you know, that, sure. uh, to, to uh, set your operation up to be specific for what you're producing. Um, you know, but with our model, the one of the important aspects is the growers invested interest in the process. And so there is some extra cost that our growers do take on 
but they also are compensated uh, accordingly. And, you know, our growers report to us that they uh, are making about 35% more income on average. And our farmers are uh, really excited about that because they're for the first time ever, they're able to turn around and make investments in much needed innovation and improvements on their farm that, that add to their efficiencies. And so um, that's uh, it, you know, that's the capitalistic approach to where they can um, continue to um, advance in their, their own operations. Right. I mean, because an integrator <clears throat> will make demands on a farmer. I, I, and I know this is true that, that, you know, an integrator will come in and they'll say, you know what, uh, your chicken house needs uh, new upgraded ventilation or it needs uh, more skylights or it needs, you know, you got to put some roosts in or something like that. You know, improvements that require a farmer who's basically operating at bare margin levels to then take loans out from local banks. And this is how a lot of these guys go under when they you know, when they start getting less quality birds, for example, or, you know, they, they make the integrator mad and the integrator doesn't give them a flock for a few months or something. You know, all of that stuff, as you know, very well happens. And, um, and so it's interesting that you're able to, you know, create a model where they're getting 35 percent extra uh, income and then they don't necessarily have to go into further debt uh, to service uh, the requirements of the integrators. Okay, you're a hundred percent right. In fact, I'd experienced some of what you're talking about on my own farms before while well, I was growing for the integrators before farmer focus. And you know, uh, 25 out of the first 29 barns that uh, came to grow and produce organic birds for us, they were previously empty and rejected by the integrators as oh. unqualified. So there's these fully capable barns just sitting out there doing absolutely nothing other than deteriorating. Yeah. And we were able to uh, bring life back into those barns and, and bring, you know, meaningful uh, revenue back to families that had lost their, their revenue. And so, um, you know, that's just part of what, well, you know, what we say, the farmer raises the chicken, the barn don't. So yeah. <laughs> uh, even with these, in quotes, outdated uh, facilities with good management and good farmers and a system that pays uh, farmers fairly, they can go in there and apply their lifelong learnings and management practices to these farms, raise good birds, and then make a fair uh, income and turn around and, and keep making the capital investments that they need to make without right. the company telling them how to spend their money. Yeah, right. That's kind of the point I wanted to make. Um, let me ask you, what is the criteria for selecting your growers? Like, how do you, you know, if you say you have a waiting list of over 100 farms, wh how do you determine who's going to be a good grower for you? And, you know, what do they have to show you uh, to make you, them a farmer focus uh, candidate? Well, we want farmers that will really embrace all the standards and really uh, want to grow for us a lot more than just for the higher revenue that comes from our structure. Right. And so, uh, you know, not just ensuring that the farm qualifies for organic production without, you know, spraying the chemicals on the ground and stuff and, and the normal wait periods with that, but just that the farmer uh, will really embrace all of the standards. And what we found that when you do uh, select farmers that really embrace the standards and the practices and farm 
uh, organically because they believe it and they love it. They go above and beyond, and it just improves the quality of birds that we get. Right. So, but aside from the organic feed, is there something else that they have to do that makes them quote unquote or an organic operation or is it just, just the feed, just the, 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 uh, you know, the rations for the birds? Yeah. So USDA organic does have more requirements than just the feed, but we as a company take our standards a lot farther than, um, just the organic standards. And that's what we call making organic mean more. And that's where we have carefully selected the animal welfare certifications that we use that are uh, well beyond just what organic requires as far as natural light and and things to where um, it does go uh, well beyond and, you know, to, to create that natural environment and ensure that all of our growers are operating with the same consistency. Right, right. Do you actually send, like, I, I know later in the, if we have time, we'll talk about Nyman Ranch a little bit, but um, like Nyman Ranch, well, I'm very familiar with them. I've, you know, done a lot of radio stuff with them, uh, been on a lot of their farm tours and stuff. You know, they have agents who are going into the field and were and working with their growers every single year. Like every farm gets somewhere between two and six visits a year uh, to see how they're doing with the pigs. And so I'm wondering if you are able to bring that kind of um, both scrutiny and also assistance, you know, troubleshooting and, you know, just like a level of sort of discussion that that really uh, enhances the experience of the farmer in growing for you, but also enhances the quality of the of the end finished product. Do, are you able to do that yet or do you plan to do that? Yeah, absolutely. We are currently doing that. You know, we have farmers that have farmed for many generations. We have sure. a few that are just started their first farm. And so they don't have years of experience to fall back on. So we have a complete support staff from what we call service technicians that go around and visit the farmers even as regularly as once a week. Wow. Um, and then another support level beyond them of veterinarians and things. So any farmer has any concerns or questions, someone can be available at any time and really show up at very same day at their farm to help them through any, any uh, questions or concerns they would have. Right. Like say they get a, let me ask you a little bit about your, your sort of seed stock as it were. I mean, for one thing, it looked, when I was looking at the photos on your website, it looks to me like those are classic Cornish cross, um, you know, that every other, you know, poultry, I mean, that's basically what the American uh, public demands. And, um, and it is certainly the most cost-effective bird. It's the one that grows the fastest and so forth, but it comes with a lot of animal welfare issues. And I'm wondering if you guys have figured out any ways to troubleshoot um, some of those issues uh, or slow down the growth of the bird just by maybe a week or two weeks so that it doesn't have that, you know, the, the legs are so weak they can't support the breast, you know, towards the end of the of its life cycle and whatnot. You know, what are do you have any strategies that you deploy to help uh, mitigate some of those welfare issues that come along with that with that particular breed? Yes. So um, we uh, have implemented and carefully selected these animal welfare practices and standards that will allow these same breeds that have serious concerns when they uh, are managed in commercial manners and packed into barns without giving natural light and and dark periods at night that 
uh, slow down growth and allow for those healthy bacteria in the digestional, uh, digestional system to, to do their thing. So we have found when you uh, implement proper um, standards that replicate Mother Nature with, you know, sunlight during the day, dark periods at night, and put them in at the right densities and feed them really pure organic feed, they really thrive. Uh-huh. Very interesting. So we're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Corwin Eatwall, uh, the CEO and founder of Farmer Focus uh, Poultry. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese, with intense requirements to succeed. Our Master Cheesemaker Program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. So one of the things I read uh, about your company, which dated from 2019, uh, I think I read it in AgWeb Daily maybe, or I don't know, one of the other trades. I'm that I am that person, Corwin. I am that weirdo <laughs> who is not in the industry, and yet I read all the trades. Um, Good for you. <laughs> well, you know, I, I got interested in this a long time ago because I, you know, this. I, I'm going to take a quick moment here to say something about Heritage uh, Radio Network. This was started by a guy named Patrick Martins, who runs an operation, a distribution company called Heritage Foods USA, and he works with exclusively heritage breed growers. And I mean, these are small farms. There's probably, I, don't, I can't remember how many people he's working with now. It's got like 70, 80, 90 people, 90 different farms, um, mostly hogs, mostly uh, pork, but some poultry like Frank Reese. He's, you know, Patrick got his start with the heritage breeds that Frank Reese uh, was raising for Thanksgiving and stuff. But um, why am I telling you this? Oh, but that's how I got interested in this industry, actually, was going out on farm visits with Patrick and seeing what they were doing, listening to those guys, and then reading up the trades on what was actually happening in the industry. So that's that's why I am this person who is asking you all of these pointed questions. Yeah, very well. <laughs> and um, and and you know, really interested in 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 show and having you show people why your company is succeeding um, because it's you know obviously very very difficult to break through that stranglehold of, first of all, the whole vertical integration model, the whole consolidation of the meat industry, you know, writ large, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, you were bucking so many um, really tough trends that I I was so impressed with that. So anyway, but to go back to, you know, to the pointed questions here, it said in an article 
that you plan to raise your line speed from 90 birds per minute to 140, which is pretty much commensurate with what Tyson and Purdue, you know, and, and the rest of them, Pilgrim's Pride, et cetera, are doing with their birds. And in fact, of course, I, as you know very well, and perhaps listeners do not know, uh, there's a tremendous effort underway to increase that line speed yet again. And uh, from 140, say 140, 145 to 175, which, you know, pretty scary if you think about it from the bacteria point of view. But anyway, what, I mean, how are you, how are you going to avoid the labor issues and the animal welfare issues that come up uh, when you are running a line speed, even of, at 140 birds per minute? That's a lot of birds, man. So what's, what's your strategy? Yeah, well, you asked a lot of different questions there, so I'll try to cover. Sorry about that. Um, I do that all the time. It's a terrible problem. No worries at all. So, yeah, obviously, a facility has to be efficient. Right. And to bring affordable uh, products and make them available to consumers. And so line speed is tied heavily to how efficient your operation is. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be more difficult or less humane um, because it it really just is managed by the amount of automation that you have in the process. Uh-huh. So, we, so we've really focused on, uh, as we increased our line speed here and there, to ensure that we were replacing some of those more laborious areas with new technologies and automation that, that uh, took the tough part out of it. And so... And really, um, this is a lot of just the culture of an organization. You know, are you focused on caring for your people? You know, are you really listening to them? Are you responding to uh, to those situations? And so um, we've put a lot of effort into building a culture where everyone is felt heard and cared for and appreciated. We even have safety committees, culture committees, and things that just uh, um, help everyone feel heard. And as a result of that, you know, we've now topped over 4 million man hours without a lost day injury. And, you know, our uh, injury rate is about 25% of industry standard. And, you know, we don't have any secret sauce or anything, um, but, you know, we care about our people. And we want to make sure that every day they go home in better condition than when they came to work. And so we need to hear for them and support them and, and make sure that uh, everything we do in our operation is uh, positioning people to uh, have a good day. And that even comes down for if the job is tough, let's rotate more often. I mean, just little things like that can make such a big difference. Yeah, I, that's a very good point. If you rotate somebody off of like, you know, one, if they're, if they're cutting 140 40 birds per minute, meaning like, say you're cutting one leg off, one leg off, one leg off. And you do that over and over again for a year, you're going to have a serious repetitive motion industry and injury. But if you're able to take those employees and they can work on any place in the line, I imagine they could probably uh, av- avoid uh, a great many of those problems just Absolutely. by that one simple strategy. See, so there you are. You could be teaching these guys at Tyson or Purdue a thing <laughs> or two, my man. I mean, for real, I, you know. I'm sure you've read some of the, you know, like Oxfam did a report on the poultry industry about five years ago that was just absolutely, you know, literally raised the hair on your head. It was so ghastly. 
uh, you know, people who couldn't take a bathroom break, uh, people who's, you know, doing the same thing over and over again for a whole year, like couldn't get off the line, couldn't change the line, where they were on the line, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very big deal. So now I, I wanted to ask you one more question about labor and then we'll move on. How did COVID affect you? What happened to your plant when, because you own your own, you own your own processing plant, which is very unusual. And so how did you manage the whole issue with worker safety vis-a-vis COVID? I'm just curious, like, did your supply chain break down a little bit or were you able to keep going because you got your people, you know, you had them separated quickly enough so that you weren't losing a lot of workers? What, what was your strategy for that? Well, we have such amazing teams that are very proactive and we put the safety and health of our team members first and foremost. So um, I was actually traveling that week when the first case at California and I was asked to loop in on a call where uh, our HR manager wanted to uh, create a pandemic response team and it's February and, you know, stuff didn't really start to happen until March and April. Absolutely. Guys, guys, don't overreact. But that's the strength of our teams and how, and how they put safety first. In fact, you know, it's like we want to order a thousand gallons of, of hand sanitizer. I thought he was crazy. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, a few months in, when everything locked down and you couldn't find hand sanitizer, we were giving hand sanitizer to the local first responders who couldn't get it. Wow. So it's that level of proactiveness of, of having, you know, separation put into their cafeterias and making changes in the workplace for proper social distancing that, and, you know, we also implemented a uh, giving of a care package every week to every employee that would involve some chicken, some food, uh, toothpaste, toilet paper, and necessities because we did not want our employees needing to go out into the public and the stores to uh, get the necessities they need. So, Yes, we did go way above and beyond, but I believe that um, that also played a role in the fact that we, we never missed a single shift. And Fantastic. the impact was so minimal that, yeah, we knew something was going on and it was it was tough to manage. But we uh, put so many th- protocols and things in place that overall there was minimal disruption. In fact, when other plants were shutting down and, and grocery store shelves were starting to go without product, we were actually able to start ramping up uh, volume and really helped us establish some strong relationships with our uh, customers. And, and that, that was a real differentiator that showed them how we're really different. You know, when, when you're responsible in your business, you care for your farmers, you treat your farmers right, which I'm one of the farmers. So, yeah, um, you know, it, it's a big partnership, but that's only a start. You're responsible in how you treat your animals. You're responsible in how you take care of your employees and you care for each team member. You're responsible, you know, in how you handle all of your uh, environmental impactors and you, you care about your carbon footprint. So that's just another aspect of, of running a responsible business. Mm. Like I said, you could really teach these other guys a few things, huh? <laughs> You know, the fact that you have your own plant, because like, I think everybody or, you know, a lot of my listeners, you know, I talk a lot about the meat industry. I've been doing this podcast for almost 12 years. So, you know, people who've been listening to me for a long time pretty much know what I know. So 
having your own plant, like the real problem for most farmers is that they only have one or two places, or usually just one, where they can send their animals to be processed. And I mean that across the animal agricultural spectrum, not just in the poultry industry. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, having your own plant has allowed you to, A, expand the way you have and what it has, you know, how it has, uh, uh, you know, affected your farmers for the better. Like, you know, I want, I want to sort of get into the sort of the monopolization consolidation of the industry and, and how you're like kind of breaking against that. Talk, talk a little bit about that stuff. Yeah. Having our own plant has allowed us to uh, partner with a lot of farmers and give them another option. Um, and like you said, a lot of areas have uh, farmers have very few options. There's one, two, or three companies, and you know, especially the areas where there's less companies, there's the growers are kind of tied to who's there, and yeah. so it puts them really under the thumb of the company that dominates that area, and then really limits the amount of flexibility a grower has if, he, if they need to, uh, t- you know, change their relationship or do something different. The option might not even be there, so. Um, that's been very impactful for us to have the facility here is growers have a better option and it's created a lot of competition for the housing in the area when, um, the, when there's more options, which has benefited all the farmers in the area. So, um, you know, we think that's an incredible benefit and um, would like to see that expand too. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit because we're going to wrap this up pretty soon. I don't want to, you know, over, overwhelm people and also keep you for too long. But I want to talk about your distribution model because you have birds, it says on your website, some 2,500 locations nationwide. Although you mentioned that it's primarily on the East Coast, if I understood correctly. Um, you even have two locations right here in the great state of Little Rhodey where I am located. Um, so how, what, what, how did you make that happen so fast? I mean, this is, what is this company? Seven years old, eight years old. How did you do that? Yeah, well, we are seven years old, but, you know, we really only launched the, the farmer focused brand in 2018. Oh, and right. it has expanded incredibly fast. Even, you know, we, we are, according to our data, we're the fastest growing organic chicken brand. And um, we are, um, the number two organic chicken brand. So, you know, how does that happen in a few short years? And I think it really comes down to the farmer focused brand answering the consumer's call for transparency. They are hungry for a transparent brand. And that's why you see the Meet Your Farmer uh, feature on every package that allows every consumer on every package to trace back to the farmer, not just a farmer, the exact farmer that raised that that uh, bird for them. And so it's important that um, that to bring that level of transparency, but y'all know it's important to the farmers because this allows the farmers to feel closer to the end consumer and it, it empowers the farmers even more. Right. But the consumers love that level of transparency. Um, you know, it's transparent in how we treat our farmers, the care we give our animals and everything. So we felt this pull uh, that has really expanded the brand and, you know, then it's just about, you know, managing, managing the company and the logistics to help 
uh, make the product available and keep it affordable. And and have you found that um, I know it's not called the Grocery Manufacturers Association anymore, but whatever it is, um, have you found that uh, you know stores or or uh, grocery store chains like Stop and Shop, say for instance, or Kroger's or something like that, are they recept? Are they super receptive? Are they you know, I, obviously you're keeping your prices competitive, um, but, you know, I'm sure they cost a little, it costs a little bit more uh, than probably even Purdue's organic brand, which is, I think, Harvest Land is what it's called, right? Um, yeah, They, you know, I, I'm just wondering, like, how do you compete, say, with a company like uh, a Purdue that can probably produce even an organic chicken at a slightly lower price point just because of the way they treat their farmers and also because of their, you know, incredible muscle uh, in the industry. Like, has that been challenging for you as a company while you were growing to fight against that? Yeah, it has been challenging because we are priced slightly premium to a lot of the organic, um, mainstream organic producers, even though um, we are reasonably competitive with them. And so that's been um, a little bit of of a journey to learn uh, how to uh, how to um, leverage into these relationships, but also it, a big part of it is for consumers to uh, find it once, try it, and love with the experience they had, and uh, and read about the brand and love the mission, and come back and buy it again. And then, so as we've slowly opened a few doors here and there, and those uh, stores experienced uh, really good success and lift, um, then that created a success story that we could take to someone else and take to Kroger and take to these other people and say, look, you know, these, these people saw their sales go up by 35% when they put our product in their store. We believe you'll be successful too. And, and so it's just building momentum as more and more people uh, have, have taken it on and tried it so we can then use that success to, hey, say, you're, you're missing out here. You, you need mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right, we're gonna. We I have one last very uh, pithy question for you, my friend, and that is the following: What do you think? I know uh, Molly, your uh, you know your PR girl, was saying something about uh, talking about Joe Biden's executive order that was signed in July about you know uh, regulating some of these monopolies, breaking up some of these big companies. You know, blah blah blah. Talk is cheap, in my opinion. Uh, I didn't see Tom Vilsack perform anything like that in his first eight years of service as Secretary of Agriculture. Just how likely do you think it is that Vilsack is going to have the stomach for taking on these big companies and breaking them up? And if he does, how do you see that all shaking out? How is how how are we going to move your model more into the mainstream, do you think? Again, multiple questions in one question. I apologize. And not easy <laughs> questions either. No, sir. Definitely not. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that what we've seen come out here recently where the USDA is allocating, um, you know, resources and programs to help um, small companies increase, become processors and increase their processing capabilities is is an example of how the USDA is starting to really understand and then start to lean in on a solution. Right. Because when they help people like me achieve processing capabilities, look what it can do for a farming community. Right. And so that's where uh, I believe that, that they are going to be um, really uh, 
putting some boots on the ground in meaningful ways here. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And would you also say, going along with that, and to go back to your previous answer about the fact that you're, you know, even though your chicken might be a couple of cents more a pound than, say, one of the big, uh, you know, Tyson type brands of organic, um, would you say that consumers are ready to start paying more money for uh, something like chicken or pork for that matter? Yes. Consumer trends have absolutely shown that uh, consumers are are anxious and ready to support brands that uh, align with what they believe in. And so, especially when it's a slight premium and not a, you know, double or triple uh, kind of scenario. Right. And, but consumers do not understand the power that they hold because when a consumer pays just a little bit more or they support a brand or a company that they truly believe, believe in and align with, you know, from any different uh, aspect of it, but whether it's the, you know, that they appreciate the fair pay for farmers and the animal welfare or the traceability or the environmental impact or whatever, which part it is, when the consumer votes with their dollars, they are taking the power out of the hands of the other companies and the conglomerates, and they are putting it into power, putting it into power of uh, hands that can really continue to drive that change. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Well, I, I probably have 50 more questions for you, Corwin, but I... <laughs> I will I will give it up and say thank you thank you very much for this. Um I'd like to I'd like to have you come back sometime and um talk as 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 this administration and uh you know things begin to develop in a more um you know we really see the trends that that uh, this administration is trying to foster in terms of of uh regulating the industry better and um you know uh putting a bit of a kibosh on some of these very heavy duty players uh, in the in all of animal agriculture. I'd love to chat with you some more about what else you think could and should be done. Because I mean, I don't I don't think that I'm just going to finish by saying I don't think that the small family farm necessarily is the answer. I don't think we are ever going to see a time when um, you know when we return to some sort of uh, Hollywood version of farming and. <laughs> at the turn of the century or something, you know, it's like, we are, we are going to be seeing guys like you uh, who are creating more of a cooperative um, model rather than an integrated model. And I, that's the, that's, you know, we, we have industrial farming is not going to go away. And so uh, the, the question now, or the, the burden is now on people like you to show that you can farm industrially at an industrial scale um, and still pay your farmers a fair wage, maintain animal welfare standards, and maintain appropriate standards for your labor in the processing uh, aspect of, of doing this. Because, I mean, meat cutting, as we all know, is a very, very dangerous business. Um, so, like, your statistic of not having a single injury in, you know, a million hours or whatever, I have no idea what a million hours represents in terms of time. <laughs> I mean, you could be telling me that that's, like, really a week, you know, because you, you have 500 employees. I mean, I don't know. But, you know, it sounds really good, Corwin. (laughs) (laughs) And I I certainly commend you for that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I just I love I love what you're doing. I got to say, like, I was a little bit skeptical, but I'm I'm feeling more convinced. I think I think you're on to something major here, especially with the the uh, let me ask you one last question, actually, before I totally wrap this up. Are you 
Nyman Ranch guarantees a price point for their farmers, no matter what the market is. Are you able to do that for your people? Yes, our farmers are price protected from substantial okay. swings in the industry. So, um, and that's part of what uh, I was talking about with with booking feed and and locking that in, and then yep. you know the company can take a the uh, historical performance, and and we we will guarantee a farmer a price right. um, before the birds even come to the farm. So that's where the farmers aren't just competing against each other. They are guaranteed a price. So that's also important in our model that protects farmers to ensure that, you know, they will have the revenues that they need. And the revenues that they project. I mean, because that's yeah. obviously the big problem with other, you know, with other vertical farming, uh, you know, captives uh, <laughs> uh, is that they, they never know what they're going to get. They never know how much money they're going to get. Um, until they, the, the, until that bird goes into the plant, gets weighed and, and cut up, right? So your model is saying, I don't care what happens. I don't care what the market is. I don't care what feed costs are. You are going to get, you know, $3 a pound come hell or high water. That's, that's yeah. huge. And that allows a farmer to plan and to plan for the future. So anyway, sir, is there anything else you want to say? Tell people where they can learn more about Farmer Focus. Yeah, just go to farmerfocus.com and uh, meet our wonderful farmers and read about the wonderful things that they're doing. Yep. And nice photos and everything, people. <laughs> and also, yeah. there's a list of all the stores. So whatever state you're in, who's listening here, you can go to this website and see where Farmer Focus chickens are sold. I know I'll be trotting right up to North Kingstown in the next week or so to buy myself a Farmer Focus chicken. So thank you so very much for your time today, sir. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, Katie. Take care. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends, and please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.